that God will help us get our lives clean and prepared. So there is a great spiritual meaning with the Festival of Lights. So uh, we need to do a little planning for that. Last year we, we did a lot of singing. We prepared food as kind of a celebration that we had it every evening. Not always a full meal, but we did do uh, finger foods and so on. And also we lit some candles, not particularly a eight or a candelabra like the Jews do, but just to recognize that that was a time when the city was lit up with light as a celebration of the cleansing. We could turn on electric lights but, uh, and light it up, but the candles seemed to give a little more meaning to it since that's what they were using then. So anyway, enough said about that for today, but be thinking about it, preparing for it, and thinking about the cleansing of your own body, mind, the spiritual temple of God, because it all has to be done. The last week, I was out of town, and uh, we had a tape about the mercy, the forgiveness, and so on that we as individuals need to exhibit, and uh, I did a follow-up sermon back then, I think it was about year 2000, maybe even 99, I don't remember for sure, but the uh, second one was entitled, uh, Our Merciful Father, and it goes into God's attitude and His approach. And after having seen some scriptures about our attitude and our approach, uh, I think it's good that we go ahead and play that since it was uh, the next sermon that I gave at that time and shows God's attitude. And of course, we are to think like He thinks and to be like He is. So this will be more a description of the mercy and the greatness of our Father in Heaven. Last week, we went into the forgiveness and mercy that we should show one to another and examine quite a few scriptures on that. And today I want to make this... In a, in a, well, that's positive. It might sound negative in a way because there is a lot of unforgiveness and, and a lack of mercy shown. But still in all its positive instruction in forgiving in order that we might be forgiven. Because as we saw, God makes it very clear that we will be judged as we judge others. If we are forgiving and merciful, we will be given forgiveness and mercy. If not, we will not be given it that we will be given it in exactly the same measure that we need it out. And that is written in very plain scripture that simply cannot be interpreted. It just has to be taken for what it says. Our judgment is dependent upon how we judge others. So we won't get back into that, but I wanted to lay a foundation for this to show our fathers, and Jesus Christ for that matter, attitude toward us and how absolutely merciful and forgiving they are, and then we can, of course, apply that to ourselves in how much we are like they are, because they are our model, our example, our pattern to follow. And let's get into it then by turning to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Here right in the middle of the 
law has laid out, the Ten Commandments, the very interesting uh, sidelight or sidebar or footnote, you might say, it's actually part of the commandment, but a very interesting way uh, that God puts it. Uh, he, Exodus 20, let's begin in verse 4. You shall not make to you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them, for I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So we're not to have any other God before our Father in heaven. That's the only God we worship. There are other gods that people worship, but they're not really gods. They're gods only in the people's minds who worship whatever it is they're worshiping. Sticks or stones or Satan or whatever it might be that they're worshiping is not a god. There is only one god. But notice what he says in verse 6. And showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That has always been a very intriguing statement to me, based upon the fact that he was probably speaking to, or giving these commandments to, at least three million people. Maybe three and a half or four. So he gives the whole nation of Israel the Ten Commandments. They're written on a stone. Moses comes down and reads them to the people. And he said, all you millions standing out there, God is going to have mercy upon thousands who obey him and worship him. Strange statement, isn't it? When you're addressing millions, and you say he'll show mercy on thousands. I address this in the uh, exclusivity series somewhat, showing that the church is always small, always has been small. And God apparently was anticipating that in that age, with ancient Israel, there would only be thousands who would heed. And for most of Israel's history, <laughs> only very few did it. Sometimes I think we get the image in our mind that Israel obeyed God. But the whole Old Testament is a story showing of their trespasses against God. And that most of the things he laid down as doctrines, as statutes, as ordinances, as commandments, the whole of Israel never kept. <laughs> so his mercy was going to be limited to thousands. And when you really understand it, there are only 144,000 first fruits in the first resurrection. So he's still only going to be showing mercy on thousands. Not millions, not billions, but upon thousands, at least in the first resurrection. We'll see his mercy extended beyond that before we're done today. But in the initial first round, first crop, the first fruits, only 144,000 out of all that have ever lived on this earth, 50 or 60 billion perhaps, uh, as estimates go. Now let's back that up a little bit in Luke 12. Luke 12. And here I want verse 32. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He can hardly wait. 
He, he wants to be beaming and smiling when he gives us the kingdom. That is his attitude and approach to it. In spite of all our sins, in spite of all our trespasses through the years, and all those trespasses of all his chosen ones throughout history. And there are many, many examples in the Old Testament of people who sinned against God, and in the New Testament of people who sinned against God. Some of their sins are even written out for us as examples that we might not go that way. But he is so forgiving and so merciful that he can hardly wait to give us the kingdom. It's his good pleasure. Not just pleasure, but good pleasure. I like the way that's written. You know, we, we can be beaming and happy and be full of pleasure over something that's good pleasure, emphasized. So, it's a little flock. Thousands who will receive mercy who keep the commandments, and it's a little flock. He will be very merciful and kind and gentle and loving and giving it. But how little is the flock getting today? We have tried very hard to try and not be thinking of ourselves as exclusive in terms of favor of God or righteousness as a group, as, as the people I'm speaking to today. And we should not become exclusive in that way, and yet on the other hand, in some respects, we are becoming more and more exclusive all the time. This month, most people in the greater church of God have already kept the Passover. We are still anticipating it. Now, if we are right, I believe very deeply that we are correct in what we are doing. That makes us an even smaller flock before God who are keeping his holy days at the right time and in the right way. And God has opened our minds to understand the truth about the calendar. That the church has been following the traditions of men for many, many, many years and ignoring some very clear statements in the Bible. Now, which authority can we put highest? The traditions of the Jews, the traditions of men, or the Scripture itself? That's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? The Scripture cannot be broken. We must live by every word of God. And yet most of the church is turning their back on the word of God to keep the traditions of men. And a sad situation. But those that do put the word of God ahead of the traditions of men are becoming a smaller and smaller group. Now in one sense, maybe it because it's narrowing down to those who will follow the heavenly calendar. That calendar which is in the heavens, not necessarily entirely in the Bible. Although it's described well enough in the Bible, we can understand how the heavenly calendar works. Now, slowly, the number of those who are willing to cast aside the traditions of men and follow the actual scripture in heavens should begin to grow as people 
are willing to have their minds opened and truly look at the matter as opposed to just going along with what they've been taught. This is a real challenge for the church. Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2, verse 8. Here he says, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Some instruction for us. And then he says something else. For thus says the eternal of hosts, After the glory has he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Those who are willing to serve God with all their heart put his word ahead of everything else and live by every word of it are those who will be the apple of God's eye. And he's speaking to the remnant of the church here. Haggai and Zechariah, we've been over that many, many times. That's what the context is all about. And we have the chance to be the apple of God's eye. If you ever go out and look at an apple tree, that apple's all over it, they're getting ripe, and you look that tree over, I mean, you're, you're not going to eat every apple on the tree. It may have bushels and bushels. So what do you do? You sort of stand back and look those apples over, don't you? Oh, that one right up there really looks good. Well, that one over there looks good. But you look it over and you finally make your selection out of all those apples and that one you pick and eat. That one's that is the exact analogy that God uses of those who are the remnant of his people here at the end who are faithful. That we are the apple of his eye. Well, we're the bride of Christ. See, it's, it's plural, yet it's singular, because it's dealing with each individual. He is selecting and choosing each individual to be a part of his remnant people and a part of his 144,000 first fruits. So he uses the analogy of the apple of his eye because we are specifically chosen. Now, so that makes us exclusive in a way, doesn't it? If we're a part of that, very, very exclusive. Only 144,000 from Adam until the return of Jesus Christ. That's pretty exclusive. So I'm not standing here trying to tell you that we as a little group, because we aren't very many, are the one and only, or we are the chosen or the very, very, very elect or whatever uh, terms people might use. But still in all, if we do the things we are supposed to be doing, that is, we show meekness and humility instead of pride, we show righteousness following the right way, and we obey every word of God, then we will be chosen to be a part of that elect group. And God will show mercy upon us as upon thousands who obey and keep his commandments and put no other gods before him. That's what he lays out before us here. So we are being separated from much of the rest of the church because of their unwillingness to look honestly at this subject, and without fear. Fear, prejudice, uh, ignorance, 
all of these things come into play. But God has opened our minds, and he separated us off. And others will join us as time goes on. But it puts us out here in a very, very small group today who are looking forward to the Passover yet ahead, not behind us. So understand that God is smiling on us because of our willingness to follow his way no matter what people think of us. And yet he may not have turned his face to us in total smiles yet because we aren't near, anywhere near as righteous as we ought to be yet. So while he can smile in one sense that we're the apple of his eye and he's going to show mercy on us, there's always that contingency there that we must have the meekness and humility and righteousness to go with it. Otherwise, he picks different apples. So let's understand how important we are in the plan of God at this point. I mean, others will achieve other importance as time goes on and his plan is worked out. But we need to understand how important we are to that plan right now because the first fruits are the first harvest of his plan. And that makes us very important to his plan. At the same time, we have to live up to his contingencies. But he's very merciful and will show thousands to his little flock and give them his kingdom with great pleasure. Now let's go to Psalm 103. I want to spend some time in the Psalms because the mercy of God is one of the strongest themes in the Bible. It's mentioned in the Ten Commandments and made contingent upon obedience and putting him first in everything in our lives. But that theme is just carried over and over and over through the Bible. It will barely scratch the surface on it today. So I picked out some scriptures, and some of these are no better than many others that I have picked, but the sermon only lasts so long, and you can only concentrate for so long. So I just picked some out, and we'll go through them to show how merciful he truly is, because a lot of people fear God in a wrong way, uh, that he is hard and unmerciful and unkind and just trying to get us to hell. But that isn't his attitude at all. I think most of us understand that. But we need to focus here on his mercy as we get nearer the Passover, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and still have many, many imperfections, each and every one of us. Psalm 103, Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. With all, every fiber of my being, all of me, bless God. Bless the Eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Now, there's an awful lot of mercy right there, forgiving all our sins, healing our sicknesses, who redeems your life from destruction. What happens to sinners? They die. Go under the lake of fire. But he's redeeming us. That's a New Testament phrase, redemption. But it's here in the Old Testament. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Not just mercy, but tender mercy. And sometimes we show mercy with an attitude. <laughs> I'll be merciful to you, you rat. You know, I won't exact this penalty on you. I won't 
do this to you, but you don't want to think of you. <laughs> kind of an attitude we might have. But God shows tender mercies. It's not a grudging forgiveness, but a tender mercy. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This could be spiritually and physically. And has ramifications both ways. The eternal executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He has a special concern for any who have been oppressed. Some of us have been mistreated as we grew up. Some of us have twisted personalities as a result of bullies at school or parents or brothers and sisters or aunts or uncles or whoever it may have been. Employers. Uh, we have twists and quirks and all kinds of idiosyncrasies as a result of our backgrounds. And God is especially tender for those who have had various types of oppressions. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Think about their history. All that they went through, how he brought them out of slavery, and he showed mercy upon them, uh, even when they murmured. He fed them manna and water and quail and so on anyway. Sometimes he got very frustrated with them. You brought us out of here to die. Oh, come on. You don't understand God at all if you think he brought us out of here to die. He didn't bring them out there to die any more than he has us. But as soon as they had trouble, they thought, oh man, God isn't here. Where did he go? He brought us out here and then he, he went away. He let them go through trial, trouble, and tribulation. He tested them, didn't he? He hadn't gone anywhere. He was there. <laughs> the wall of fire was still there. The cloud was still there. But God was gone. The reason of the people. He made known his ways to Moses and the children. The eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. An abundant mercy. Human beings can be angry in an instant, can't they? We can get angry so fast. And yet God is slow to anger. Doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. He's been angry at us. He's been angry at the church. He's blown it apart in his anger. But even as much as he blew Israel apart, eventually he's going to save Israel. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. This right now, isn't it? Because of what has happened to the church. He has not dealt with us after our sins, but rewarded us according to our iniquities. You think about your life. Has God really rewarded you according to your iniquities? Had He rewarded me according to mine, I would be dead many times over. He resurrected me each time, I'd be dead every day and resurrected daily. <laughs> you know? And there have been some times when my life has been really, really bad. Sometimes it's been so-so. I can't think of any time when it's been really, really, really good. <laughs> we all have sins, and he's never rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. The sun is high above the earth, Look at it in the daytime, and his mercy is as great as the distance of that sun, 93 million miles. 
you go out at night, and His mercy extends even further. You can see way out into the universe, stars that are many, many light years away. And His mercy extends as high as the heavens go. Toward them that fear Him. Always a contingency, isn't there? Always. Can't ever get away from that. That's becoming a common word in my speaking recently. Contingency. That factor is always there. He's not going to be too merciful those that don't fear it. But for those he is, sky's the limit. The heavens are the limit. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's limitless, in other words, isn't it? Absolutely limitless. Another comment was made about uh, the scripture I read last week where it says, where Peter said, how often should I forgive? Seven times? And he said, seven times seventy. Four hundred and ninety times. And I made the comment, well, that's limitless. But if you're, count, if you're keeping score and counting them, it doesn't matter. The attitude's still wrong. Now, I'm going to count these 490 times and after that, buddy, you've had it. Uh, it it's limitless. If you keep score, you got a problem. Keeping score, you humans tend to do a lot of that, don't we? Uh, I should invite you over. You've invited me over. Uh, I should buy you lunch today. You bought me lunch yesterday. Uh, uh, if you'll forgive me, I'll forgive you. You know, that, that's all the examples that come to mind, but there could be thousands of them where we keep sort of a mental tally, don't we, about what that person owes me and what I owe them. And God says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You just... You give here, you give there, you give somewhere else, and you don't keep score. Don't you don't keep a mental tally. You just you, you block that out. You don't think about it. You just give where you can give. God doesn't keep score. We do. That's not a good thing. So as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Quite a ways, isn't it? <laughs> Limitless. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities them that fear him. Have you ever pitied your little kid when he got his hand slammed in the car door? Boy, we try to get that hand out in a hurry, don't we? Try to get the door open. Hope it doesn't lock. Get his hand and fingers out of that door. And then fingernails may be all mashed off and it's black and blue and we pity that child because of his hurts and the difficulties that he goes through in his life. A lot of us haven't had that kind of fathers. A lot of us have difficulty relating to that kind of father. So let's try to understand emotionally the kind of father we have by some of the pity that we can see that we have felt for our little children. That's exactly how he thinks of us. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He always keeps that in mind. He knows what we are. He remembers that we're dust. 
and he pities the city way. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, like a tumbleweed across the prairie. And the place thereof shall know it no more. Once the tumbleweed blows away, it's gone. That's the way man is. You die, and a few people show up, cry some tears and some crocodile tears, and say some things, and, and have lunch, and go on. Those who are the very closest will mourn and have difficulty over you for a few years, perhaps even until their death, which probably isn't too far away either. And then you're forgotten. Vanish. They've got the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and the various few other things that they keep around to try to remember men by. But how many men are really remembered for very long? 60 billion of them, you know, they're gone like fleas on a dead dog. Disappear. But the mercy of the eternal, verse 17, is from everlasting to everlasting. So it's as high as the heavens, as far as the east is from the west, and everlasting. Never will come to an end. Upon them that fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So generation after generation it lasts. To such as keep his covenant, to those that remember his commandments to do them. And this isn't really saying anything that we haven't already read in Exodus 20, verse 6, is it? Just repeating it, using more verses to say it, but it needs to be explained. It needs to be expounded a bit. And even though he took more time here in the Psalms to read it, or to say it, explain it, now I'm taking time to expound on it even some more, to stick our noses in it, to see how merciful our Heavenly Father is. The Eternal has prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Eternal, you his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening to the voice of his word. Bless you, the Eternal, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Eternal, all his works in all places of his dominion. And his authority reaches everywhere. Bless the Eternal, O my soul. You can't bless and honor and glorify God enough. It's just incredible what he does for us and what he is going to do with us in spite of the fact that we are nothing and passes tumbleweeds. Psalm 25. Here I want verse 4. Psalm 25, verse 4. Show me your ways, O Eternal. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. It's the way we are. It's the way we feel. We're waiting on him. We're trying to be patient toward his kingdom, toward the blessings that he's promised he will return to us. Remember, O Eternal, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember you, me, for your goodness sake, O Eternal. We get together in family gatherings and reunions and so on once in a while, and people start recounting each other's sins. What you did to me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, husbands and wives do it. Get in the heat of that spat or argument or a fight, whatever you know, husbands and wives do, 
And isn't it amazing how quickly you can forget all the good things that person has done and said and been to you, and how quickly you can remember an isolated incident 35 and three-fourths years ago? Bam! It's just right there. Not just at the tip of your tongue, it's off the tongue, out the mouth, and all over the other person. Or we have good memories on those things. But goodness, that's easy to forget. Because we say, oh my goodness. That's an expression I think we need to get rid of. My goodness, not yours. I remember other people's goodness, but we, we even use it as a, a slang expression. My goodness. Aren't I good? Good and upright is the eternal. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the eternal are mercy and truth, and the such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Whatever he's considering, whatever path he takes, you know, wherever he goes, that's, that's the path you take. You get in your car and you take this road, that road, the other road, see? Every path God takes includes mercy and truth. For your name's sake, O Eternal, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. That man is he that fears the Eternal. Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Eternal is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now, that is a merciful thing. The secret of the Eternal is with them that fear him. How many people truly fear God and know his secret? The mystery of the ages. That he is going to make us into God. I mean, if people, what do people dream about in this physical planet, this earth? Human beings that walk the face of the earth who don't know anything about God or very little about God or worship a false God or whatever. What do they want? What do people you know want? They want long life. Ponce de Leon went all the way from Europe to to Florida to find the fountain of youth. And today we're exploring all kinds of drugs and all kinds of pacemakers and all kinds of organ transplants and all types of cloning and everything you can think of to try to prolong life for an extra 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 30 minutes, whatever they can add. We want long life. And we would love to feel good, wouldn't we? You don't have that long life. You want to feel good during it. You don't want to be sick. You don't want to have physical afflictions and problems. And I look out here today, and I see many people with all kinds of afflictions and physical difficulties. A lot of people who don't feel good for various reasons. But we want to live long and feel good while we do it. And we want peace and happiness. We don't want fighting and warring and struggling. Those are all things God is going to give us forever. This world is out there seeking them apart from God. And they're going to have limited success, aren't they? Maybe they can add through some wonder drug or some operation five years to your life or cut out a fourth of your body to save the other three-fourths, you know. They might be able to preserve somehow your physical existence for a year or two or three or five, 
with some of their techniques. Big deal. What's the big deal about that? You're probably going to suffer through those extra months or years they give you anyhow as a result of it. And they can't give you much. But mankind would rather do anything he can to circumvent a God who can give them everything they ever wanted and give it to them forever. It doesn't make a bit of sense, does it? They just can't stand the idea of fearing him and obeying him so that they can have his mercy and live forever. They come up with a whole theory of evolution that pervades the earth so they can deny there's a God. That's what it's all about. It's not that somebody honestly thought that those things happened that way. They had to find a way to get around admitting that there's a God who made it, and therefore we have to worship him. That's the whole basis of evolution. If you admit there's a God, you might admit he has to have authority in your life. That he might affect your conduct in some way. So let's believe that there isn't a God and we just evolved from scum and that monkeys are on the same level as we are and so are turtles and everything else that out there that creeps and crawls. The mystery of the ages is turning us into God. So the secret of the eternal is within that fear him, verse 14. And he will show them his covenant. How many people has God shown the new covenant today? How many people on earth understand the mystery of the ages? Basically only the church of God. There is no Protestant denomination, no Catholic, no Muslim, no Buddhist, no Shintoist who understands the plan of God. That we're to become God. They have, some of them, beatific visions that if we're good enough and our, parent, or our relatives pay enough money to get us out of purgatory and keep paying, that our view of God is going to get clear. But we'll always see through a glass darkly, but the more money they shove into the church, the little clearer view we'll see. The haze will not be quite as thick. Now, would you like to spend your life peering through fog looking for God? And hey, that's something really to look forward to, isn't it? All you Catholics? Or the Protestant view that we'll have a little cloud and we'll sit on it and get to look at God. And we'll have a clear view. Now, it's just one step above the Catholics. We'll have a good view of God. And then if you believe in reincarnation, you just come back as a mouse. <laughs> a cow to walk the streets of India. They just don't get it. God has showed his covenant to only a few. How incredibly merciful that is to you and to me. I mean, look at the mercy on us right now that we understand the purpose of human life. Verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the eternal, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. There's a big net going to be thrown over the earth pretty quick by Satan the devil. And how merciful he is that if we will keep our eyes on him, he'll pluck our feet out of the net. Turn you to me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. There are our emotions, our feelings, I think, right now. 
the whole church is feeling pretty desolate and afflicted if they understand what's going on. Some of them are still living in a little rose-colored bubble, I guess, where they think that they're Philadelphia and they got it made and everything's hunky-dory. So they don't grasp at all and perhaps don't even feel desolate and afflicted in spite of the fact that people are spiritually dying on their right and left by the tens of thousands. They still think, hey, everything's okay. We're okay right here in this little group. Whatever group they're in. We're not okay, are we? Are any of you okay? Let see the hands of those of you who are okay. You wouldn't admit it now, would you? <laughs> you might think it sometimes, but you wouldn't admit it here in public, especially when I'm saying what I'm saying. No, I don't think we feel that way. I hope we don't. But vanity can creep in very, very easily, can't it? The troubles of my heart are enlarged. They'll bring you me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. This is going to increase as time goes on. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Spiritual Israel, the church, needs to be redeemed out of all its troubles. And a merciful God has given us his covenant, shown us which way to go, and said if we'll fear him, he will deliver us. There are many scriptures about him redeeming Israel from all its troubles. All right, let's go to chapter 85. Chapter 85. And here I want to well, start in verse 1. Eternal, you have been favorable unto the land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. This is a prophecy. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. God speaks of those things that are not as if they already are. Now, how positive can you get? How merciful can you be when you speak of those things that have not yet happened as if they're already done? It's a done deal. God's going to do it. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. So the affirmation is made that this is going to happen, and he says, please do it. We know it's going to happen, and now we're in this exact same verse. Please do it. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Is this thing just going to go on and on and on and on? Generation after generation? I don't think so. The church is almost gone now. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? It isn't for succeeding generations, it's for us. It's going to end before this generation ceases. Show us your mercy, O Eternal, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Eternal will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. There's Haggai 2. In this place will I bring peace. But let them not turn again to folly. And many in the church are turning again to folly. Protestantism and various other forms. The book of Psalms is full of prophecy. It's like we're turning the tape over back there. Verse 9. Surely his salvation is near them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. We must worship in spirit and in truth. 
Now, unless we have the truth, mercy doesn't come. Mercy and truth meet together. There are a lot of people out there who think that they will receive the mercy of God. They don't have the truth. Those are two things that have to meet together in order to, for them to be fulfilled. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You want to know what we have to have to be part of the latter temple? Righteousness and peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the righteous. Matthew 5. It's all through the Bible. This is a theme that just goes over and over and over again. And God will show his mercy to those who have the truth and who are righteous and make peace. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the eternal shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. He walks in righteousness, and he will cause us to walk in righteousness, and then he can show mercy and bless. Um, Order so much here. weeded it out so much as we went, as I went through it. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Eternal, all you lands. Serve the Eternal with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. This is what he wants. Know you that the Eternal, he is God. It is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Now speaking to us, to you and me. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the eternal is good. His mercy is, till tomorrow at least, no, it's everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. Chapter 130. Psalm 130. Here I want verse 1 as well. Out of the depths have I cried to you, O Eternal. Eternal, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. We'd love for him to hear us, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we? And sometimes we pray and we think, boy, I didn't get anywhere. He didn't hear that. I didn't get an answer. Where's God? If you, Eternal, should mark iniquities, O Eternal, who shall stand? That's what I said a while ago. Raise your hand if you're good. No, we can't. Who would stand? That there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. That's one of the reasons we fear God, isn't it? Fear, if you've noticed already, and it's throughout the Bible, fear and his mercy are indicated or mentioned together quite frequently. He will show mercy on those who fear him. Fear to disobey him. Those who put their whole attention upon him. And when he forgives us and shows mercy, that should create a certain awesome respect in us, a certain fear in us. Who am I? Who are you? Sometimes God 
heals us, doesn't he? We've all seen healings, and we all anticipate more. Right now, we're suffering through some things, and every healing doesn't take place immediately, does it? Sometimes we are made somewhat better. Sometimes we're given a certain amount of relief. Sometimes God lets us suffer for a while. He's teaching us things. But how much awe should it inspire when we actually are healed? When we receive a benefit directly from God to us. Who are we? We're nothing. And yet God in heaven looks down and individually tweaks whatever's wrong with your mind or your body and fixes it. How can he do that? He can see him and yet he fixes me. We like things that we can see. We like to go to a doctor. We like to have a placebo. We like to have a pill. We like to have a shot. We like to have something that we can see and say, that helped me. I can see that. That helped me. You know, they stab it in your solar plexus and, oh, that helped. <laughs> Whatever. But it's awfully difficult for us to really believe that something's going to happen when we pray to somebody we can't see, never have seen, and hope someday to see. See why we have trouble believing? And he says if we don't trust and believe, we won't be healed. It's kind of a tricky thing, isn't it? We want to believe as much as we can believe, but he says, I will do it. All you got to do is believe me. Trust me. But doubts come in. Doubts come in. Doubtless we won't be healed. How do we come to trust him that fully? If we trusted him that fully, we would be seeing that kind of healing yet today, I believe. Now, there's a set time when he's going to bless in ways that we've never seen before. And yet, on the other hand, we're of little faith all too often, and a lot of it's our own fault. We don't believe him enough to obey him, and we don't believe him enough to accept and claim his benefits. So when there is forgiveness and there is healings, our jaw ought to drop. That should create a fear within us. I wait for the eternal. My soul does wait, and his, in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the eternal more than they that watch for the morning. Do you ever wake up early and you're hurting or you're wanting morning to come so you can have an excuse to actually get out of the bed which has become painful to you? Or you're just, you're laying there awake, you can't get out, you can't, um, you can't wake fully up perhaps. You're not really ready to get up, but you can't go to sleep. I have longed for the morning at times. When I wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and my eyes come open and I can't wake up, I mean, I can't get up, it isn't time to get up. I wake up the household, it isn't time to go do anything yet. But I can't go to sleep. How I long for the morning so that I can actually get up and, and percolate around. But I know I've got three or four or five hours there that I still need to be in bed. And I should be getting sleep, and I know I need to sleep, so I don't really want to get up. I want to go back to sleep. It's what I want. But then I just wish the morning would come. 
My soul waits for the eternal more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Says it twice. Let Israel hope in the eternal, for with the eternal there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. Not just a little bit, but plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All the sins that all Israel has ever committed can be forgiven. That's an awful lot of folks over an awful lot of thousands of years. And he's willing to wipe it all out. And we, we bring it down to ourselves, my personal sins, and I want to be forgiven. But think about how many millions and billions of Israelites have lived, and how many sins each one of those people committed over 70, 80, 90, or 100 years. That, that would be staggering. I don't have a computer up here. It might be interesting to figure it out. You know, there have been, uh, say, 10, 15 billion Israelites, and then you count how many sins per day times how many years they've lived, and add that up. That would be a real big pile of sins. You know what? I never thought of that before, but that, that's an awful big pile. And he's willing to wipe it all away. Um, boy, we could go to Psalm 136, and I could spend an hour there. All it says over and over and over again, we'll give thanks to the Eternal, for His good, for His mercy endures forever. That chapter is... 26 verses long, and every one of them says his mercy endures forever. Do you think he's trying to get something across to us there? I'm not going to go through it all. I don't have the time. His mercy endures forever. There is the pattern for us in our relationships with each other, that God's mercy endures forever and ever, and he repeats it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. That's enough. No, it's not enough. I didn't say it as many times as it is here. 26 times. Over and over he says it. So let's move on. If we get the point. Hosea 6. Hosea 6 and verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. All he was really ever after. No, look, look at all the passages in the scriptures that he used to institute sacrifices and tell them exactly what kind of sacrifice they had to give on a certain holy day and after a certain sin and to receive peace and all those sacrifices of animals and birds that they had to do. And he wasn't after sacrifice at all, all along. All he wanted was mercy and their attention. But they had to go through all that sacrificial stuff and bleeding all those animals out, and killing them on the altar, and people seeing that. A lot of bloodshed. Just to get a point across that they couldn't get. I'm sure glad we don't go through that today. Maybe there are other ways that we can get the point through His Holy Spirit, through His understanding. I desired mercy, not sacrifice. What did the Pharisees want? Sacrifice. We're going to get you. God's going to get you for that. That's what some of the Protestants want today. God's going to get you for that. They don't want mercy on people. Other people they want it for themselves, not for the people. 
but God's going to get you for that is a pretty common expression. No, not if you repent. That's what he's after. Mercy. Us to have mercy with each other, just like he's going to have with us. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Micah. Chapter 7. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He just can't wait to forgive. That's our pattern. That's our example in heaven. He just can't wait to forgive. How often have you and I forgiven through clenched teeth, forgiven through a mind that's protesting the whole way because we know we absolutely have to do it? That means we're just not like God yet. He passes by the transgression and delights in mercy. What an attitude. Do you, I mean, look at the sins that he looks at in one day on this earth. Now, we hear a little bit on the news about a murder or a robbery or a molestation or something. We catch a little snippet of it. What must it look like from on high as God looks at all these billions of people on this earth each day what they are doing? And even within his church, how many sins occur during the period of the day. Now, that is a God that's slow to anger, isn't it? He doesn't get outraged. Finally, you know, he said, well, all right, I'm just going to drown you all. But he gave him about a thousand years, 1,400. Now he's going to send a great tribulation, but he's been pretty slow to anger. He's, he's waited. He's bided his time. He's been patient. He's let us go our way. He hasn't wiped us out. He has every excuse and reason to. But he delights in mercy. What an attitude. Uh, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Well, I'm headed there. Isaiah 49. And let's pick it up in verse 8. Thus says the Eternal, In an acceptable time have I heard you, and in a day of salvation have I helped you. And this is our day of salvation, and he's helping us toward salvation. And he's giving us trials, tests, and all kinds of difficulties to help get us toward salvation. Sometimes we forget that our trials, troubles, and tribulations and difficulties are a blessing. A blessing from God. They don't seem like a blessing to you and me, do they? They're blessings from Him. Because they lead us toward salvation. I've helped you and I will preserve you and give you for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Those who turn to God with their whole hearts will be known as the repairers of the breach. Isaiah 58. It says that we give our bread to the hungry and we take care of people and we fast in order to have the right attitude toward people, not just to get something for ourselves, that he will use us to repair the breaches. And that's what he's saying right here again in a different way. That you may say to the prisoners, go forth, get out of prison, 
circumcision of your own mind and emotions, as well as physically. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. That's what Christ said in Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Set your light on a hill that it may be seen. Show yourselves, he says back here. They shall feed in, your, in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. God is going to give people everything they've ever dreamed of, but would go to any lengths and to anyone to receive except from God. He's the only one we will not approach to give us the things we have always wanted. How perverse is human nature. But it's all in here. Isaiah 54, verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken you, speaking to the church here, but with great mercies will I gather you. A gathering is just ahead, after he shows his forsaking and spewing. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the eternal Redeemer, for this is as the waters of Noah to me, like the rainbow, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wrath with you, or angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. This is right at the end time. But my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Eternal that has mercy on you. He's going to return peace to the church, and show mercy on us. Romans 9. Let's see a few here in the New Testament now. Romans 9. And I'll hurry through these. We're getting close to the time. Uh, Romans chapter 9. And let's pick this up in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? I mean, what, what, how do you analyze that? He loved one and hated another one. What do you say about it? Is there unrighteousness with God because he hated one and loved another? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. Esau tried to repent very bitterly and couldn't. Couldn't find it in his heart to to have a compassionate uh, attitude toward his brother Jacob. He hated him ever after for what Jacob did to him. And God could have blessed Esau, but Esau simply would not repent. He just bit down and said, I hate that rascal. And Jacob and Esau are still fighting. Esau is going to get the upper hand over Israel right here at the end, as we've seen in other scriptures. And he's going to be very unmerciful when it happens. Read Obadiah. And God is going to destroy Esau as a result of that. It's too bad. That recalcitrant, unrepentant, unforgiving, unmerciful attitude, God hates. He's going to judge Esau just like Esau judged Jacob. Now, Jacob did wrong, didn't he? Didn't he steal the birthright, right, basically? Didn't he lie to his father, Isaac? And wear skin hide on his arm so his 
father would bless him and think it was Esau? What chicanery, what lying, what folly. It would have been hard to forgive, wouldn't it? When you really realize that you had traded all the blessings that God would give for a little bowl of red soup, that would make you so angry you could scream. And he did. And he's been trying to destroy Jacob ever since. And it's, even it's the, the attitude has all gone on through the thousands of years, through the ancestry. Thousands of years that attitude has remained there. And it's still there, and they're going to get us yet. And they will. What a powerful example for you and I to consider. God will show mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he's told us, as I explained last week, he's going to judge us exactly as we judge others. And that's why Esau gets what he gets here. Maybe that puts this into perspective a little more about God's attitude toward Esau. It was unrepentant. It was unforgiving. It was unmerciful. He felt like he had been cheated and it was unfair. That's one of the biggest areas that we have in our emotional artillery is pity me. Self-pity. I have been mistreated. People have been unfair to me. Satan's entire attitude. God wasn't fair to me. He didn't let me take over his throne. <laughs> you know, sad. But boy, we can get these attitudes. Verse 16. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. And sometimes we have to look up to God and say, Father, please have mercy on me, like the publican did. Because we have a difficult time controlling our emotions. We're emotionally immature, spiritually immature. We cannot control them, and that means we're immature. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised you up, verse 17, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens just like he did the Pharaoh of Egypt. God can harden our heart, too. If we show hard-heartedness. But he will grant us mercy and forgiveness if we will show that. Verse 19, You will say then to me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? We're not here resisting God's will, are we? Who's, who's resisting God's will? Well, we all do. <laughs> no, but, O oh man, who are you that reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Is not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another unto dishonor? We, we start comparing ourselves among ourselves sometimes, don't we? But God made you like you are. He made me like I am. And he told us all, change. But some of us will turn out as vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor because we are not pliant. And we will not let God shape us. We have to yield to his hands. 
that if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, what if God just looked down at us and said, there's one that's sinned, there's one that has problems, I'm just going to wipe him out. We'd all be gone. And God would be righteous because he wiped us out for sin. Perfectly righteous in so doing. But he chooses mercy. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Why has God called you and me? Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. He's called the weak and the base to confound the wise and to show God glory. So he's made us, he's, he called us who were not the mighty and the rich and the noble. We weren't the great of the world, we're just folks. And in some cases we've been very weak and in very cases very base, haven't we? So he's chosen us as vessels of mercy to show to the world that look how merciful I am. I mean, look around the room. Well, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> I see you all. You see me. We're all vessels of mercy to show the riches of his glory, which he is before prepared to glory. See, even when we were born, he chose at some point to call us. Some he called from the womb. He chose us. He worked with us through our lives to bring us to the point where he could show us his covenant and make a vessel of mercy out of us. He worked with you and he's worked with me for a long, long time to get us where we are today. And he's not going to give up on us now. Because for his glory's sake, we will become vessels of mercy. Even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he didn't limit it just to Israel. He included Gentiles. Then he goes on down to explain that. Let's see. Second uh, Corinthians 1. Second Corinthians 1. Verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's almost like a name of God, the Father of mercies. His name goes with mercy. There's the example for us to follow so that our name might be called John, Paul, Bill, Bill, Ron, anybody, any name you want to name, of mercy. Wow. I, just, I mean, men, the men's names came to mind, but they stick up high in the room here. But the women the same way. That which sticks up highest and more gets shot off. <laughs> so just because we're men, don't think because we're piled a little higher that uh, we can't get shot down too. Romans 11, I, I probably should go to that right there in the context of, uh, of Romans 9 where he shows that we're vessels of mercy. Because, well, there's a couple of verses here we could uh, focus on. Chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
God has allowed Israel to sit in blindness of God's way. Speaking of physical Israel here. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. God has provided a second resurrection and a plan. The rest of the dead live not till a thousand years was over, Revelation 20. He has provided a plan that that huge number of sins that we talked about earlier of Israel will all be forgiven. And they'll come up in the second resurrection and have a chance at salvation. Now, how merciful can you get? Going on down to verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He called us before we ever repented, didn't he? For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. If we are merciful, God is going to use us to bring mercy to others. The bride, the spirit, and the bride, remember Revelation 22, offer salvation to others. So through the 144,000 who have already obtained and are obtaining mercy, God is going to extend mercy to all those who have lived in the past even. We have an expression sometimes after somebody dies, you want to say something bad about how they were. Well, we shouldn't speak ill of the dead, we'll say. You know, we, we, we think it anyhow, but we shouldn't speak it. God is going to resurrect all those dead and forgive them. Well, we, we still like to talk about them while they're in the grave. For a comparison and showing his mercy. Let's see. All right, let's cover a couple, three, well, maybe three or four very short ones here. Philippians 2, I believe you get into them, and there's more there always. Philippians 2, verse 24. I trust in the eternal, that I also myself shall come shortly, yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion, and labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that he, you had heard that he had been sick. For indeed, he said, what you heard was true. He was sick nearly to death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 30, because for the work of Christ he was near to death, not regarding his life, he counted dying unimportant because he knew his life would be preserved forever in the world tomorrow. How many people in our society today consider this physical life so unimportant as it's bad? I'm high. So what? Oh boy, we'll, we'll trust God up to a certain point and then we'll run off to find some cure or some doctor or some drug or some operation or something to preserve this life. And God says he who seeks to save it will lose it. And he who seeks to lose it will save it. Epaphroditus had the right attitude. So it doesn't matter whether I live or die. As long as I die in the faith, I live forever. But we have trouble believing we're going to live forever. We have trouble believing God is that merciful. 
So we cling to this life for every moment, every hour, every day, every month, every year we can get. Because we're afraid to die. We don't have faith that he who is above can resurrect. We believe it mentally, theoretically. But we have trouble believing it in our hearts. We have trouble turning loose of this life. Epaphroditus didn't, and God healed him. First Timothy 1. What an incredible, merciful God we have. First Timothy 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Look at all that Paul did, even killing members of the church, and yet God gave him mercy. This is a faithful saying, verse 15, and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. He used Paul as a specific example of one who was a chief among sinners. Now, Paul was chief among sinners. He wasn't lying. He was telling the truth. And God used him as a pattern. He cut Paul out of this world and brought him as a pattern to us to show the kind of mercy he's willing to give. James 5, verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Eternal for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. You had to be pretty patient to lay on your side 360 days, and no, 300, I short-circuited, 390 days altogether, to lay on your side, being afflicted. Ezekiel, poor Ezekiel laying there. Yeah, lay there 300 and some days. All right, now turn over, Ezekiel. I'll lay that way a while. What they went through. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the purpose of the eternal, that the eternal is very pitiful or pitying and of tender mercy. We see that by reading those prophecies. Well, I'm out of time. I want to go to one more. Let's get one and go to one more. This one, this one is a good one. John 3, verse 14. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember the story where uh, they were dying of a plague of snakes? They put the serpent up on the post, and anyone who looked upon that was saved from the plague of snakes. That was pretty merciful, because those snakes would have gone through Israel and killed all three, four million people. If God had not stayed the plague by putting that, or Moses hadn't stated by putting the snake up there. What a mercy shown. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only, the only possible son. Christ was not created, brethren. Don't ever believe that false doctrine that is going around. If Christ had been created and he had blown it down here, God could have created a whole bunch more just like him. Why did he create us the way we are if he could create Christ out of nothing? Godly character cannot be created by fiat, as Herbert Armstrong told us all those many long years. Character has to be developed over time and in pressure and in difficulty and so on. And we bring most of it on ourselves, but Satan is willing to give us some as well. No, he gave his only son. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He would have lived alone forever had Christ blown it. And the possibility you have to know was there or you don't have a Savior. If there was absolutely no possibility that he could ascend, then we have no Savior. He didn't sin. He resisted it under blood. Therefore, we have a Savior. That was a very, very, very remote possibility. I believe that. They had this thing figured out long before it ever happened. But he could have turned. He could have given it up. He could have sinned. And he was having a difficult time on that stake when he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? They had been one throughout eternity. And now he was on that stake, and his father forsook him because of our sins. And he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? We have been one forever. And I'm, I'm feeling very alone here. He was alone. The Father turned his back on him completely because of our sins that were on him. He was too filthy to look at. He was forsaken there. Because of our sins, God gave his only begotten Son that we might have everlasting life. There is a pattern of mercy that is unparalleled in the universe, in the past, present, or future. And it is the pattern that we are to follow in our lives toward one another, to be like our Father and our elder brother.